0: Good morning. So I know you're talking a little bit about the reality, the tangibleness, if that's a word, of some of these women that you've been studying. And we had the privilege some years back to, uh, to visit Israel, and some of you have, have done that as well, I know, or may have the opportunity to soon, and I would really encourage it. And one of our tour guides used to say, you know, you've read the Bible in black and white, but when you come to Israel, you see it in color. And uh, it was very true, you know, you, you hear the waves of the Sea of Galilee lapping against the shore and you imagine Jesus there with the disciples and uh, you go up on the mountains and you look over and you think about Jesus there praying and, and you start to realize these places are, are real places that, that we read about and you can visualize them in your, in your mind then as you read scripture. And the other thing that you think about is that these people from the Bible were, were, were real people. They aren't supernatural. They didn't have wings. Uh, you know, Peter was a guy. He was a fisherman. And, and Mary was a young girl from a little village, you know, right near the Sea of Galilee called Nazareth. And, 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 and I started thinking about the people in the Bible and some of them more well-known and some of them less, lesser well-known. And, and when we get to glory, when we get to heaven, you know, what's that going to be like? Like, you know, ooh, there goes Priscilla and Aquila and, and you know, and, and there goes Samson. You know, look at that guy or, um, those kind of things. Will there be a welcome table? You know, will we wear name tags? You know, <laughs> like, oh, hello, my name is Ehud. You know, oh, you're the left-handed assassin. Okay, great, stay away from you. <laughs> but anyway, and but as we come to today's lesson, we have a, a woman, and we don't get her name. She's just the sinful woman. And I want you to just really ponder that as we, as we go through the, 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 our time together today and as you spend time in your table, uh, and just let that sink in. As Patty reads the passage right now, I want you to, if you're comfortable doing so, just kind of closing your eyes and, and take yourself back to this first century village with, with, with a stone hut and, and dirt floors and, and people milling around in, this, in this, this real event that really took place on a little side street, in a little village in, 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 uh, in Nazareth. So Patty's going to read from Luke chapter 7.
1: One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she heard that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Go. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Father, we pray for the power of your word through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit within each of us to arise and fan the affection Mm -hmm. for Jesus. Wreck us anew, undo us anew for this one who even forgives sins. In his name
0: we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks. So, as we look into this fascinating interchange that again took place at an actual dinner party in the first century, we want to unpack the three main characters of the drama. We're going to see a forgetful man, an unforgettable woman, and an incredible savior. First, a forgetful man. His name is Simon, he's a Pharisee. He invites Jesus into his home to eat. Those are the facts. These are the things we know about him, and everyone in the village would have known as well. And to put these facts in other terms that we might be more able to appreciate, he's successful. He's wealthy. we switching? Okay, thanks. Probably upper middle class. He's privileged. People want to know him. People want to be liked by him. He does not appear to be outwardly hostile toward or against Jesus. Does, we don't get any sense here that this Pharisee is out to get Jesus in any way. He's a religious person, a Pharisee, and he wants to hear from Jesus for one reason or another. Is it a part of a plot to trap Jesus? Some commentators think maybe it was. But we don't know. It doesn't tell us that. As a Pharisee, he was trained in the law, not the civil or criminal law, what we think of when we think of, of a lawyer, uh, but, but, but a moral law. How should you live? What should you do? What should you not do? What's right? What's wrong? What's commendable? What's damnable? What makes you accepted or rejected? See, Pharisees were good at pointing fingers. Inviting Jesus into his home, Simon wants to initiate a discussion with this teacher that's, that's becoming well known. He wants to have a conversation about important weighty matters of moral acceptability, moral righteousness. And see, when a person of Simon standing in the community with a home like his invited an out-of-town teacher to come in for a gathering such as this, it was kind of understood that the community would be invited. People who were interested in those kind of discussions could come and listen in, kind of like a a community event. That was part of the role of being a host, to open the event to the community. And a big crowd reflected well on the host, that they're throwing a good party, if you will. However, those who came from the community were supposed to follow certain rules of etiquette. They were not to speak or or be heard from. That was for the experts, the teachers of the law, the well-to-do. Those from the community could fill in from the sides and the back. To to use a phrase we sometimes hear people use about children, they're to be seen and not heard, so to speak. To be invisible, to be forgettable. However, we see that Simon is a neglectful, forgetful host. We can not ascribe motives to him, whether he was choosing to humiliate Jesus and treat him as some sort of second class citizen, or whether things just got busy and it was oversight. But we don't really know why. But we do know that, that Jesus points out Simon's forgetful neglect. He's forgotten some basic elements of hospitality. There's no water for dirty feet. There's no oil for dry skin. And there's no welcome, kiss of affection or respect. These are important components to being a host of of this type. In typical Luke fashion, as Luke's playing out this this dinner party and telling us what's happening at the home of this Pharisee, he tells us kind of a meanwhile on the other side of town, kind of sort of this narrative component. And we get this this picture of a woman uh, who hears about this gathering. So this woman that enters the the drama now, we're going to find that contrasting this forgetful man, Simon, is a woman who will become unforgettable. So she finds out about the dinner and that Jesus will be there. And so she comes and she brings a gift, an alabaster jar of ointment, probably more appropriately thought of as perfume. You know, we think of ointment, it's pretty thick and kind of gooey, probably more like a perfume concentrate would be a good word to think of it. And alabaster, I, I learned, was, is an interesting, it, it's, it's kind of translucent. When they make a jar of alabaster, it's not glass, but it's not stone either. It's kind of this mixture, translucent-ish. So whatever you put in an alabaster jar, whatever color it is, that's what color the jar looks like. And it's porous. So if you put something in an alabaster jar and it, it, it has smell, that smell is going to seep through very subtly. Sometimes it was goosenecked and pinched off to seal it. Other times it was corked uh, and, 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 and could be opened and closed at will. Usually bigger on the bottom, kind of goosenecked up on the top. And oftentimes it was, it was made small and worn around the neck as, an am, um, as a pendant. And so you can imagine something that smelled good that had a pretty color to it, would become a sort of a jewelry. And because of the appeal to the eye and the scent, the type of woman who would want to ensure they had access to perfume wherever they went was oftentimes a prostitute. And that's the reason some commentators feel that this woman being identified as a sinner with an alabaster jar, two and two together, that's where they get. So if your Bible notes say prostitute, that's where they get that. The scripture doesn't tell us that but that's the inclination there, that, the, that, the amp, that, that wearing a, an ampule of, of alabaster scent would be kind of a, a sign of the trade, that the woman walking the street was something like that. Well, this woman is entirely different from Simon. He, again, is, a, is, is privileged, and people want to know him and want to listen to him. She is a sinner, as the scripture tells us. She's not one known for pointing out the sins and faults of others. She's used to fingers being pointed at her, She's unvalued, she's dismissed. She has nothing to offer in the public arena, nothing to offer in weighty spiritual discussions. She's not to speak at gatherings of important conversations. She's supposed to stay forgettable. Yet she honors Jesus where Simon neglects and forgets him. Some commentators are even surprised that she gets into the house. Why wasn't there a bouncer at the door to say, you can't come in here. Here's this woman, this sinner, unaccompanied by a man, that would kind of be expected, you're going to a discussion of spiritual things that she'd have a man there with her, because she can't get invited. You know, it's funny, I taught on this passage before the Me Too movement. And it gave me a different set of lenses. You know, we we can look, we can go back to the late 1800s and the early 1900s and women's suffrage and getting the vote took almost 100 years. Really? We can think of the feminism of the 70s, you know, the anger and the Me Too movement of today again. But this is nothing new. If you read Luke's scripture, as you guys have been doing, we're reminded again and again of the radical way Jesus honored women. That that he had a gender appreciation that we can still learn from today. So we wonder if there was a gasp or a moan or some collective chorus of whispering gossip as this woman enters the room with her alabaster jar, the sinner. The guests are reclining at a low table, their feet are behind them, because they're dirty, away from the food. And you can see her making her way over people's feet, you know, kind of gingerly trying to step and not get on anybody, you not make, make get anybody's way. She makes her way towards Jesus, where interestingly, there's room and she sits behind Jesus at his feet, and she weeps. Tears, big tears, lots of tears. One who somehow gets in despite her low status and sinful reputation breaks the single rule assigned to a spectator at such a dinner party. She becomes visible. Instead of being invisible and forgettable, now she's weeping, filling the room with her sobs, loud enough for everyone to hear, messy weeping. The tears become so excessive that she has enough moisture where they fall to wet Jesus' feet. Think of that, that much tears. Perhaps noticing her fallen tears or mixing with the caked on dirt, forming rings of mud, she's aware no one has washed Jesus' feet. She decides to take it upon herself to serve Jesus, providing that common courtesy that Simon neglected. And then she does something that certainly sets the room abuzz with audible gasping and dropped jaws. She lets down her hair.
1: Women grew their hair long in Jesus's day, but it was always worn up and covered, braided, tucked tightly away. A wife who wore her hair down and uncovered in public could be divorced, sent away without any financial sentiment, out on the streets, if you will, out gone. A woman's hair was intimate, personal, Like her very sexuality, it was reserved for her husband, for his pleasure, and for his enjoyment alone. It was her vulnerability. It was her innocence. When a woman let down her hair, it was a bedroom scene. A significant moment in a wedding night ritual involved a new bride letting down her hair for her groom. And by doing this, she is saying to her groom, I have saved myself for you. I'm yours, 100%. I give myself to you totally and without reservation. I have waited for this moment. And this woman does this. A woman who has not saved herself. A woman who's given herself away. She does all of this without knowing how Jesus will respond, whether he will accept her or whether he will reject sinful her. And while the onlookers stare in unbelievable amazement, she goes one step further. She breaks that alabaster jar. The fragrance fills the air in the room. As she rubs Jesus' feet with precious, costly substance. I was thinking an aroma of life for her, but for those who are smelling it, aroma of death. She breaks from all she has become. She breaks from her sinful trade with its dependence upon scent and sight. She's an ugly cry mess. She surrenders her livelihood, her future, 100%. Where will this woman go after? The room is filled with excitement, anxious, foreboding for some of the natural senses. Her sobs reach their ears. They see her let down her hair. They smell the perfume. She touches his feet, wiping them with her hair. And she asks me, when do I let my hair down for Jesus? When am I willing to be an ugly, slobbery, snotty mess for Jesus? And as I was answering that very question, even in our study, I was reminded that it's when I teach. You may think I'm a snotty mess all the time. I'm not. Jenny will testify. For years, I never cried. I prayed for the gift of tears. And the Lord reminded me that when I teach is when I am a snotty mess. And honestly, it is only when I am preaching the gospel that I'm free. The moments before I stand up here to preach the gospel, I'm not free. I'm worried about what you think. And when I drive home, I have to preach myself the gospel to, to, to give have that peace come back. But when I talk about Jesus, is the only time I'm free. The only time I'm abandoned is at the cross. Jesus' abandonment at the cross for me seeing what I would become, seeing what you would become, he said, this is worth it. As God brought this to mind, I'm also reminded of the many, many times I am tempted to neglect speaking of Jesus. I'm respectful. I don't use his name as a curse word. But I'm neglectful of speaking of him, of being abandoned for him. I don't want to give myself totally. I want to save myself for what others think how they will judge me more than how Jesus sees me. I was recently in a grocery line, and I asked the checker about her day. I was sharing this with the leaders, and she said, any day on this side of the grave is a good day. And I thought, hmm, that was an open door to talk about my Jesus. But I hesitated. I started to agree with her. I was neglecting Jesus, and I was neglecting a woman. He died to save right in front of me. Timidly, I said something not very eloquent about looking forward to life after the grave, that it would be better. And I watched for her response. She looked at me amazed and puzzled at first, and then made a small comment about believing in God. So I said a bit more, and she said a bit more, and I said a bit more, and she said a bit more. But it was still a pattern of respectful neglect. It still stopped short. This is a pattern of respectful neglect that I am not proud of. I know that in those moments, I need to be preaching myself the gospel in the same way that I do up here in those very moments in the checkout line at Save Mart.
0: And although we've identified Simon as a forgetful man, and he did forget those common courtesies toward Jesus, he's not going to forget this. Scriptures pretty clearly tells us that, that he th- thinks that this woman should not even be touching Jesus because of who she is. This is scandalous behavior. This is, this is awkward. This is, it's sexual in a way that, that, it, that is making him as the host uncomfortable. You know, Simon's a judger. He's a Pharisee. and and making an assessment, making judgments as part of his DNA. He's a right versus wrong kind of guy, and what's happening in front of him is just plain wrong. If someone speaks from God, Simon felt, they would judge this woman, not accept this inappropriate gesture. God is a God of judgment. He judges sin, she's a sinner. Simon expects a prophet of God to resist this over-the-top overture. Simon expects Jesus to say, tell her to stop, ask her to leave. In fact, Simon is telling Jesus in his his thoughts, open your eyes, Jesus, look at her. She, She is a sinner and righteous men distance themselves from sin and sinners. Push her away. We would have quite a puzzle to sort out if Luke stopped here. But of course, this isn't the point. A forgetful man, a woman who is unforgettable, and then an incredible savior. In verse... 40 to 43, we read this. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Simon, I have something to say to you. Can I I be frank? Can I tell you something you you may not like hearing? Will you be teachable? Will you allow me to tear down your presumptions and your pride? That's what he's asking. Jesus tells a parable. There's a moneylender, a bank, a savings and loan, a credit union. We're familiar with those. And there's two borrowers. Both are in debt neither has the ability or resource to pay back their debt. One owes 50 denarii, denarii is a day's wage, that's two and a half months of of salary. One owes 500 denarii, that's about two years worth of salary. I did the math and figured that most people, regardless of how much they make, most people spend about two and a half months of their salary on a car. Not with cash, but by taking out a car loan. So 50 denarii is kind of like a car loan at the bank. The first day, you roll it off the lot, full, full price. 500 denarii is more like a mortgage. Again, regardless of your income, your home is probably worth about two years of your salary. So a 500 denarii debt is like a mortgage. That first day, full principal, haven't made a payment yet, you get the keys. The bank, the savings and loan, the money lender holds both notes, the car loan, the mortgage. And they decide to wipe off the debt. Think about that, car loan, mortgage, wiped clean. You take a loan, you sign some sort of promissory note, and in some cases, even in today's paperless world, when the loan is paid off, they stamp paid in full on the note and send it back to you with red ink across the top. In first century Palestine, in the common language of the land Greek, the words paid in full that signified payment of a debt were the words story. Bank of America holds one person's car loan, another's mortgage. Both are stamped paid in full. No more payments, no more principal, to tell a story. And Jesus asks Simon, which person will love him more? Simon answers, it seems, a little cautiously, almost like that fourth grade kid at a Sunday school class that thinks he knows the right answer, but he's kind of afraid to get it wrong. He says, I suppose the one with the greater debt. Jesus' answer is classic and filled with irony. He tells Simon, you have judged rightly. Simon likes to judge, remember? Yet so far in this account, Simon hasn't judged anyone or anything rightly. Up to this point, he hasn't judged the woman rightly. He hasn't judged Jesus rightly. And most importantly, as we'll see in a minute, he hasn't judged himself rightly. The point of the parable is, yes, Simon, the one with the greater debt will love the money lender more when that debt is paid off. But the lesson isn't complete yet.
1: Luke 7, forty four uh, to 47. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. With his feet still wet, with the aroma of perfume in the room, with the women's hair intimately and scandalously undone, Jesus tells all in attendance and us, you, Simon, the successful, the self-important, the respect, respected, the finger-pointer, the one who continually finds fault in others, you are the one who sees a small debt. But sin is not merely bad done. It's the good not done, and it's the good done with wrong motives, the good done to look good to others. She, a woman, this unnamed, disregarded, sinful woman, is the one who understands that she has a great debt, one she cannot work off or ever pay back. She is the one who loves much because she knows the helplessness of being under its weight. The good she has done is greater than the bad Simon has not done because it's an expression of already being forgiven. So much so, Jesus shifts the hostility towards her to himself. Don't miss that. Jesus takes a hostility that is pointed towards her, and he shifts it on himself. A costly demonstration of unexpected love. This is the gospel. Is this not the cross? The hostility we deserve, Jesus takes on himself. And this gospel gives us a right understanding of ourselves. The woman had it. Simon didn't. Neither have saved themselves for God. Neither have given themselves 100%. She's given herself away through immorality. He has sold out through morality in which he thinks he can save himself. Both are in debt. Both had sins, lifestyles, attitudes, actions that deserve quick judgment from God. You, Simon, you love little because you think your offenses against a holy god are merely a car loan. A debt, sure, but not one that would throw you in prison or put you out on the streets, like her. It's manageable. You see, sisters, we drift into legalism judgmental hearts, when we look at ourselves as merely 50 denary sinners, pride in our obedience, pride in our holiness, pride in our rule following, we think we're taking care of our debt. But in reality, we are increasing the debt. We are amassing a greater burden through pride, through obedience for wrong motives, through judging others. But her the woman. She loves much because she sees herself rightly, a sinner with a massive debt against a holy God, one she cannot pay back ever. And she is not offering her love in exchange for a sin debt, but responding to a love that has collided into her life, offering to pay it.
0: Jesus asks Simon, do you see this woman? Moments earlier, Simon was screaming in his head, look at her, Jesus. She's a sinner. Get rid of her. But Jesus turns it on Simon and says, do you see her? She is a sinner, yes, but she knows how and why she's been forgiven. And she loves much. She is free. She's debt-free, punishment-free, paid in full, to tell a story. See, when you understand the depth and gravity of your debt that your situation is as ominous and foreboding as it is, you can't forget the one who paid it. You can't be blasé or matter-of-fact. You're overwhelmed, you're amazed, you're in awe. You worship. You know, it's like the character Buddy in the Christmas movie Elf, you know? I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it, right? That's the, that's the response. It's that kind of joy that springs up in this woman as she sees the massiveness of her debt, the slave she was to it before she met Christ. Not again that the things she did were so bad. That's not the point. The point is that everything we do from self motive is that bad. And rather than incredible love in response to unforgettable mercy, we don't really respond as if the debt is canceled, wiped out, forgiven. Instead, I think oftentimes in the modern American church, we respond as if the debt isn't that big a deal. The bank has a lot of money. So getting my car loan wiped out is kind of like winning the lottery. Well, lucky me, good for me, I dodged a bullet. Wasn't that serious. Or as Patty mentioned, we see it as an opportunity to refinance. And we say, okay, I'll get new terms. I'll get a new interest rate. I'll do better next time. So we see our Christianity as weekly rituals, as, as coming to church, as going to study, as, as doing a quiet time, as, as making a payment on the loan. Little bit at a time. We start adjusting the rules, comparing ourselves to others in order to keep this self-image alive. We respond to forgiveness with a, yeah, I'm I'm not so bad. And it leads to a loveless, lukewarm forgetfulness, like Simon. And it's been impressed on me that the male female interaction or even if if you'll allow me, that the sexual atmosphere of this dramatic dinner party is an important part of its lesson to us. We're the bride of Christ. We're called to love God with our heart, our soul, our mind and strength, all those things passionate, pleasurable, peaceful, safe, liberated, sold-out love. We're Christians. We're in love. We're in love, and we shouldn't care who knows it. We should be letting our hair down and breaking open bottles of perfume in joyful celebration of that amazing debt that has been paid on our behalf. See, the gospel gives us the right understanding of our relationship with God. It transforms our life by transforming our motives and then, then our actions. Verse 48 to 50, he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. There are no greeter words that can ever be said about you, about me, about anyone. Our groom, our savior, our lover, if you will, has canceled the debt the great, massive, unbelievable, inconceivable debt that we owe. And many of you already put this together, but as Jesus hung on the cross, giving his life as payment for our debt, he proclaimed in a loud voice, it is finished. In Greek, to story, paid in full. In blood red ink stamped across the promissory note of the law and its requirements, released from the debt, released from the obligation to pay back God. It's been removed. We're free to live a life of peace, joy, intimacy, love, not to refinance, not to do better, not to try harder, free to respond with love-fueled works of faith. The mercy of God fuels the devotion of the redeemed, and it's a passionate, love-filled, intimate, gospel-motivated devotion. Best book I've read this year, Patty handed over to me, is is Extravagant Grace by Barbara Duguid. Get it, read it. And I was was struck by it because just this week in World Magazine, they did an interview with, with Barbara about the book and Marvin Olasky is interviewing her and he asks her this question toward the end of the interview. He says, Barbara, you write, quote, God chose to leave us significantly deformed and imperfect after our conversion because he values something more than our sinlessness. What's the something? Barbara answers, his son. We don't treasure Christ. We are not captivated by Jesus Christ when we're strong, victorious, and triumphant in ourselves. We're eager to tell everybody how they can be like us. But when we are shredded with failure, there was nowhere to look but to this savior. God loves his son, He loves it when we love and cherish his son. He loves that more than our sinlessness. I pray as I grow older, as all of us grow older, we see the magnitude of our sin and rebellion clearer and clearer. And the result of that clearer vision devastates us with an increasing sense of how unbelievably loved we are by an unforgettable savior. We're going to close with a song And it's a song that you are all likely familiar with, even though it's not a hymn, it's not a praise chorus, as appropriate as those might be, it's probably a song you've never sung in church, or maybe even heard played in church, because again, it's a love song. But I want you to think about this in relation to your Savior. Who is this who even forgives sins?
2: does things to me. Never before has someone been more unforgettable in every way and forevermore
1: It be so that the reality of you, Jesus, an incredible Saviour, that you would be unforgettable. That someone so unforgettable thinks that I that my sisters here, that the sinful woman and that Simon are all unforgettable too. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.